blessing it is, and we've been able to reflect on it so many ways tonight, that we have a tender Savior. There are many religions out there that uh, have dreamt up powerful gods, but uh, the true God of the Bible is unique in that He is merciful, and He is kind, and He cares. I'm grateful for that. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. And tonight I'd like to continue examining this uh, little book, uh, considering the foundational principles that Paul shares with us here. Now, I, re- I want to remind you, as he's, as he's writing to the Colossians, he's writing to Christians in a city that, as far as we know, he has not visited. And so, these, uh, in many cases, these are Christians that Paul has never met, and that has an impact on how he's writing. And one of the impacts is that he really focuses in on the central elements of their Christian faith and on his desire to see them mature, to see them grow in those most essential uh, matters of the Christian faith. And that's helpful to us because we all uh, need to return and consider those things again. As we work through this book, considering those principles, uh, I'm not trying to be revolutionary. Uh, None of the things we're going to consider together are probably going to be completely new to any, or at least many of you. Uh, But I want us to take time to consider basic principles, and as we do that, to ask some basic questions. Uh, Questions like, what does this mean? Last time we looked at the idea of hope, and we asked the very simple question, what is hope? And we'll ask a a light question tonight. Other questions, like, why is this significant? And how does this change the Christian life? A A few weeks ago, as I mentioned, we looked at hope, the idea of the truths of the gospel allowing us to look beyond to the eternal. And that idea has really been at the heart of so much of what we've considered tonight in song. Uh, That song, It Is Well, why is it well? It's because he was able to hope, to look beyond his circumstances to those eternal truths. And tonight we're going to look at a second foundational principle. Um, If I ask for a raise of hands tonight, and I'm not going to because I don't think it would be helpful, uh, but I ask you to raise your hand If you are happy with where you're at with your prayer life, I dare say that probably, if we were being honest, fewer than half of us would be able to raise our hands. Now, I think we all understand that prayer is a huge component of a mature Christian life. But it's still easy to neglect. Tonight... I want us to consider some things we can learn about this subject of prayer from this first chapter of Colossians. As Paul uh, talks about prayer, what are the, what are the things we can learn here? Um, and before we even get to the key passage we're going to consider, we've already seen that prayer is important to Paul. And we see that throughout his writings. But he's already mentioned in verse 3 to these Christians in Colossae that he is praying always for them. Now consider that with me. I mentioned that... For the most part, probably, these are people he's never met. And if he knows them, many of them, it's only secondhand. And yet, this church, this group of Christians that 
he probably doesn't really know. He's saying, you're part of my regular prayer life. And we see that throughout his letters to churches all throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. He's saying, I am praying for you. I am praying consistently for you. So we see right off the bat that prayer is important to him. And as we get into the verses we're going to consider tonight, we're going to begin in verse 9, but I just want to lead into that a little bit. In verses 7 and 8, he's talked about the the ministry of Epaphras in Colossae. And I mentioned this last time. Epaphras was um, apparently the one who shared the gospel with the people there in Colossae. He's the one who was able to introduce them to Christ, lead them to the Lord. He's been a servant for Christ to those believers there in, in Colossae. And now he's come to Paul, and he's giving Paul, he's given Paul a report. He's saying, here are the good things that are going in, on in Colossae. Here's the growth that's happening. Here's what God is doing in the lives of these Christians. And so Epaphras brings that good word about them to Paul and Timothy. And that's the context then as we get into verse 9. Paul says, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, He's talking about the good things they've heard about Colossae. Do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So let's consider together this foundational principle of prayer. In these verses, Paul is saying, I'm praying for you. And as we read through these verses, there's a lot of questions that we could ask. Uh, always, Paul's writing is so full of truth. And, and we can spend so much time digging into that and asking questions of the passage and trying to learn all that he's saying. But I want to ask you to just consider a few questions tonight. As we look at these verses, and I want to start with the most basic question about this topic. What is prayer? Well, prayer can, of course, be defined simply as talking to God. And that's not a wrong definition. But I do think that Paul gives us an interesting insight here into the nature of prayer. Notice what he says in verse 9. He tells them, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that. And he goes on to list these things that, that they're making a matter of prayer. So, as we look at the way that he's wording this, the way that he's structuring it, Paul seems to be saying the things we're praying and the things we desire are synonymous. And so I don't think that we're off base to say that prayer is desires directed heavenward. Prayer is our desires given over to God. Let me ask you tonight, what do you do with your desires? Some people might say, well, I indulge them. 
Now, probably no one here tonight is rich enough that you could say, every time I want something, I make sure I get it, all right? But I think even if you had the ability, we all understand that's a bad idea, okay? Just because you want something doesn't mean you should have it, all right? The, the policy of, if, if I desire it, I'm going to indulge myself, bad idea. But what's the alternative, Well, for many people, they think the alternative is, well, if I desire something, I just have to suppress that. Try not to think about it. Try to push it out of my mind. Try to push it out of my focus. If I desire it, I've got to to just keep pushing it away. i just got to keep suppressing that. And we probably, if if we've tried to take that as our our policy, uh, you've probably come to know that that only works so well. What ought we do with our desires? Well, how different would your life be if your default response to your desires was to direct them to God? Here Paul is saying, here are the things that I desire, and I'm taking them to God in prayer. How would our lives be affected if we said, this is something I desire, I'm taking it to the Lord in prayer? When we do that, we put the matter in the hands of the one who, who is the only one who has both the power and the wisdom to give and to withhold perfectly. So if we're putting the desire in his hands, we can know God's going to do the right thing with that. But when we do that, it helps us to purify our desires. It helps us to desire the right things. It helps us know what to do with those desires. So it helps us in the area of sinful desires. For example, let's say you work in an office setting, and you have a coworker that works next to you, and they get a new stapler. And this is not just any stapler. It is an electronic stapler. So this is one of those ones you don't have to push anything down. You just take your paper and you slide it under there, and whoosh, you've got a staple. All right? Those things are, are great. Sometimes you might just take one single sheet of paper and put it in there just for fun, just, just to hear that satisfying sound. But your coworker gets one of those, and you say, I've always wanted an electric stapler. And they leave early one day, and you're there at your desk, and their electric stapler is sitting on their desk. And you want that electric stapler. And you realize that they're gone. When they come back tomorrow, there could have been any number of people that walked by their desk. They're going to have no idea where it went. I want that stapler. I've got an opportunity to get that stapler. What am I going to do with that desire? Well, you might say, I'm going to indulge that desire. I'm going to grab the stapler. You might say, I'm going to suppress that that desire. I'm just going to try to block it out. I'm going to try not to think about the stapler. Or you can take that desire to God. Say, God, I really want that stapler. And you present that desire to God. When you do that, what is that going to do about your perspective on that desire? Well, you're going to realize before God, it doesn't really matter how much I want it. That's sin. And when we present that desire to God, God helps us know, look, That's sin. That offends me. Uh, If I want you to have an electric stapler, I'll make a way for you to get an electric stapler. But this is not that way. 
It's a little bit of a silly illustration, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. When we have sinful desires and we present them to God, He helps us know this is not something for you to have. And when we're tempted, that's what we need to do. We need to say, I've got this desire. What am I going to do with it? I'm not just going to jump in and indulge it. I'm not just going to do my best to not think about it. Let me take that to God. This policy also helps us when it comes to our material desires. They say that a new iPhone is coming out in September. And uh, maybe you've already been doing research online, watching YouTube videos, trying to find out everything you can about the iPhone 14. And uh, lots of conjecture out there. But maybe you'd say it comes time in September when the new iPhone is coming out. And you say, I really want the iPhone 14. What are you going to do with that desire? Well, you might say, I can make this work. I can pay it off. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to get an iPhone 14. Or you could say, I'm just going to try not to think about it. Okay? I'm not going to think about the iPhone 14. I'll tell you, Apple's not going to make that very easy for you. But if you say, I want the iPhone 14, what am I going to do with that desire? I'm going to take it to God. And say, God, you know my desire. I want the iPhone 14. And I'm giving that desire to you. When we come before God with that, what does that do? Well, it gives us perspective. Most likely, when you come before God and you say, I really want the iPhone 14, in the presence of God, you'll realize, I don't need that. My phone is just fine. God's taking care of me. This is not the path to happiness. I don't need it. Maybe, in the presence of God, you'll be able to say, you know what? The iPhone 14 would be a tool I can use for the glory of God. I believe it's something he wants me to get. And you can move forward with confidence. But when we present our desires to God, instead of just indulging them or trying to suppress them, it's going to change our lives. I think we compare it to a healthy relationship between a parent and a child. Kids have a lot of things that they want. But if my sons wake up in the morning and they come out and they say, Dad, I really want some breakfast. I'm not going to say, I don't want to hear about what you want. Look, I'm focused on taking care of myself. Go away, all right? You can worry about that later. No, I'm going to say, absolutely. That is a legitimate desire. It's morning time. It's breakfast time. Let me get you a bowl of Cheerios. But if we're walking by the toy aisle in Walmart... It might be a different matter when they start to say, Dad, I want. Sometimes the answer might be yes. Most of the time it's going to be no. Why? Well, because I recognize I have a better perspective on whether or not these things they desire are going to be helpful and needful and whether they're going to be something that are, is really going to edify them and our family. And a child who has a good relationship with their parents is going to learn, we hope, to be able to rest in that. 
even when they don't get what they want, to realize, even though I don't understand, my parents still love me, they've got a reason, I don't necessarily get it, but I'm going to present my desires to them, and sometimes they'll say yes, and sometimes they'll say no, and that's okay. And that's the relationship we ought to have with God when it comes to our desires. And that's, that ought to be one of the things that marks our prayer life. It's me coming to God and saying, God, this is what I want, and I'm giving it to you. So prayer is an expression of desire to God. Our desires directed heavenward. Prayer says, this is something that matters to me, and I'm presenting it to you, God. But we see here clearly from the very beginning that Paul recognizes that prayer is much more than just a religious exercise. This isn't just a, you know, a duty. This is one of those things I'm supposed to do as a Christian. And so I've got to keep it on the checklist or I'm going to get off base. It's much deeper than that for Paul. And it's interesting to consider this. Think about Paul. Epaphras comes to him. And he says, I've been in Colossae. I've been sharing the gospel with them. I've been teaching God's word to them. Let me tell you about what's going on there. Let me tell you about the growth that's happening in that church. As these believers are coming closer to the Lord, it's exciting. I want to tell you about it, Paul. And Paul hears about all that, and he thinks, this is great. I want to see that continue. I want to see these Christians grow. I want to see them mature. I want to see them become more and more like Christ. And we say, Paul, write them a letter. That'll help them. But no, what does Paul do? Before he writes anything to the church at Colossae, he says, Epaphras, Luke, Timothy, let's pray. I want to see something great happen in Colossae. I want to see these Christians grow. I want to see them become like Christ. I want to see God do something amazing there. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to take that desire to God. And yes, God uses him to write this letter, but before any of that starts, he is praying to God for this church. Again, I ask, how different would our lives be if this were our habit? If we made a practice of directing our desires to God. The next question I want to ask of this passage. First was, what is prayer? Second question, what did Paul pray about and why? He lists specifically the things he's praying for the church at Colossae about. Why is he praying about those things? Now, I don't do this because I want, I want us to build a list of prayer requests and say, these were Paul's prayer requests, so let's have the same prayer requests. I don't think that's what he intended by, that, by this. I don't think that's necessarily the most helpful thing for us in this passage. But as we do look at what he's praying about, I think we can learn some principles and say, what is the emphasis, what is the function of Paul's prayer for this church. So what does he pray for? Well, he says he's praying that they'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which he equates to having godly wisdom and spiritual understanding. It's really interesting to me. We talk a lot about knowing God's will. Paul puts that together with having godly wisdom, having spiritual understanding. So perhaps when we want to know God's will... Um, we should do what the author of Proverbs said and seek wisdom, seek God, what, what God says in his word. But he says that's his desire for them. He also is praying that they might live worthy of the Lord, 
that they might be fruitful in good works, that they might increase in their knowledge of God. He goes on to pray that they might have divine strength to endure with joy, that they might be able to give thanks to God for all of His benefits, their spiritual benefits from Him. Now, I don't want to discount the power and necessity of praying for physical concerns, and we've done that tonight. And that is good, and that is right. But I do think it's telling, and there's a principle for us to glean from the fact that in Paul's prayer list, these are all spiritual concerns. You might say, well, maybe he just didn't know about anything physical that was happening to the church, so he's focusing on the spiritual things. Well, maybe, but as you look at his prayer request, it's pretty clear that he is expecting this church to go through some really difficult times. I don't know if it's because he knew already about, uh, about uh, persecution they were facing or some tribulation that was coming through, or if he just thought, you know, I know that hardship is on the way. I know that they're going to face opposition. Either way, he's expecting that in this church, but we don't see him in his prayer, in his prayer list saying, I am praying that God would lift that persecution, or I am praying that God would ease the burden. Instead, he's praying for those spiritual things, that in the midst of that, God would give them strength to continue to bear fruit even under those trials. And so, like I said, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about the physical things, but before that, more important than that, more basic than that, We ought to be praying that God would do his work in the heart, that God would do the spiritual work. And every physical prayer request is an opportunity to pray for what's going on inwardly. God is allowing that situation for some reason. And it's not just a physical reason, it's a spiritual reason. So that's what Paul is doing here. He's praying for these these spiritual concerns. And I think that we can say that Paul is praying that because that's what he truly desires in this church. Before he desires that anything specific physically would happen, he's desiring that God would do this inward work, that God would grow them, that God would help them to be strong, that God would help them bear fruit. These are the things that Paul desires for this church. James wrote in in James 4 to a group of Christians, and He said there, beginning in verse 1, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war. So let me pause for just a second before I go on. This is, these people have lusts. They have desires. They have things that they want. And what are they doing? They are fighting tooth and nail to get what they want. And James is saying, yet ye have not. They're fighting. I want this, I want this, I want this. I'm going to fight to get it. And I'm even going to go against other Christians and and battle against them to get what I want. And, And James says, you're not getting it. Why? Because ye ask not. They have desires, and what are they not doing? They're not presenting those desires to God. But then he goes on and he says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. So he says, even when you do make those desires a matter of prayer, you're not getting what you're asking for. Why? 
Because your desires stink. Your desires are not right. And so as you present those desires to God, God is saying, absolutely not. So what is the answer to that? They have all these desires, they're fighting to get them, and then finally when they get some sense in their heads and they present it to God, God is saying, no, 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 no. That is not what you should be desiring. So what are they to do? Well, James says, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I could go on in the passage, but, but I hope you get the idea. James is saying, you've got all these desires. You're fighting to fulfill them, and you're failing. Then when you turn them into prayers, they're so selfish that your prayers are just falling to the floor. What's the solution? Humble yourself. Submit to God. Draw near to Him. Let Him cleanse you. Nearness to God will clean up your desires and will lend power and purpose to your prayers. As Psalm 37, 4 says it, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thy, thine heart. So what do you and I pray about? What does that reflect about what we desire? And you know, the, uh, the interesting thing here is, you know how to purify your prayers? Prayer, as we said, is taking those desires before God. You know how to clean up those desires? You know how to make those desires more what they ought to be? Spend more time in prayer. Do you find yourself praying about silly, selfish things? Well, pray about that. If that channel of communication is open with God, then God is going to do His work to clean up our prayers and make them what they ought to be. On the other hand, if prayer is just a religious exercise to you, then your prayers mean about as much to God as they do to you. So we've considered what prayer is. We've considered what what specifically Paul prayed about here. But this next question really stuck out to me as I was reading and studying through these verses. And that is, why does Paul include all this in his letter? I understand why he's praying for them. But why does he take the time to write this all out here? Why doesn't he just say, I'm praying for you guys? Or why doesn't he just pray for them and not say anything in the letter at all? Why go into all this detail about his prayers? Well, I think the context of chapter 1 and really of the entire book give us some insight on that. As he opens up this letter, again, to an unfamiliar group of believers, I think Paul wants them to know, I care about you. He wants them to know that he's invested in what's going on in Colossae. He might not be there, but he's invested in what's going on there. Paul wants them to know that this is personal for him. Colossians is not a form letter. It's not a proclamation from the apostle. This is 
a personal letter from one follower of Christ to another group of followers of Christ. Paul is saying, I'm invested in what's going on in Colossae. But he's also helping this church to know that he sees significance in his communication to God, not just his communication to them. Again, he's praying for them before he's writing anything down to send to them. And he wants them to realize, I see this as important, not just this as important. He has commended them on what he's heard of their current maturity, but he wants them to know that progress still needs to be made. But before he really dives into the instruction that he gives to help them to make that needed progress, he wants them to understand that in this, his reliance is on God. So, Paul is interested in the use of human means. And through the course of this letter, he mentions quite a few people, individuals who God is using in one way or another. Paul is very interested in that. But he realizes that's all subordinate to the work that God is doing. He doesn't just have to figure out, how can I get the right person to Colossae? How can I get the right message to Colossae? How can we work this all together so that people are in all the right places, so that all the right things happen and and the work moves on? No, Paul is saying this is all in the hands of God first. Yes, he's going to use people, but... Ultimately, this isn't in the hands of the, of the Christians at Colossae. This isn't in Paul's hands. This is in God's hands. And so he's expressing that the power for the growth that he wants to see happen in Colossae, that power is coming from God. One of the valuable functions of prayer is that it serves as both a reminder and an expression of the fact that we can't do Christianity We can't do church without the ongoing empowering of God. We can't successfully be Good News Baptist Church without this. We can be an organization, but we cannot be all God wants us to be unless the power is always coming from Him. And Paul wants them to know from the very beginning in this letter, look, I am excited about what God is doing. I'm excited about what God is going to do. But it's God that's doing it. And it's God that's going to do it. And yes, I want to to teach you. I want to train you. I want to present this truth that will challenge you. But we've got to keep our eyes on him. What does a prayer-starved Christian look like? What does a prayer-starved church look like? Now, sadly, in today's world, I fear that we don't need to go far to find out. But I think we see an example of this in the book of Revelation. Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. And he commends them for a lot of things. For good works, for endurance, for the fact that they're intolerant of false doctrine, for the fact that they're working tirelessly But what does he say? Thou hast left thy first love. This is a church that is busy, that is charitable, that is orthodox, that is unshaking, that is untiring, but it is a well-oiled machine without a heart. 
And listen to me carefully. And this is a warning to all of us, individually and together as a church. Prayerlessness leads to organization and routine without passion and without power. We can carry on the administrative side of what we are supposed to do as Christians or what we're supposed to do as a church without prayer, but we cannot do the work of God without prayer. We wonder why America has so many dead churches. And I don't pretend to know all the reasons for that. I'm not claiming to have any authority there. But maybe it's because they stopped praying. And God help us if prayer for us has become simply a religious rite. Even as Paul continues to talk about what he's praying for the Colossian believers about, he does express here the importance of gratitude to God. And uh, he's, again, encouraging them, keep your eyes on the one to whom you owe all of this. He says um, in verses, uh, he begins in verse 12, he's talking about the Father uh, who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He hath delivered us from the power of darkness, hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And this is like Paul. As he's writing here, you're, you're asking Paul, are, is this still something you're saying you're praying for them about? Or are now you saying this is something I'm giving thanks for? And I think it's a little bit of both. He's saying, this is something I'm, I'm concerned about you and Colossae about. I am praying that you will be giving thanks to God for these things, for the hope that you have, the expectation of those things that are beyond this life. But I think he's also saying, this is my heart before God. I am giving thanks to God for these things. This is so vital again, when it comes to our prayers, because gratitude to God helps to center our prayers. It helps to give them clarity and direction. So much more could be said about prayer, but I really want us to consider tonight how central is prayer to what I'm doing spiritually? And this is a challenging question to me. How do I try... Or how often do I try to accomplish something in my life or in someone else's life without prayer? How many of us would have just started to jot off that letter to the church at Colossae, sent it off, and then maybe sat down and prayed for them? What sorts of things make up my prayers? And do I take my desires... And direct them to God. Paul said here to this church, he said, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, 
which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The name of Duncan Campbell may be familiar to some of you. That's him in the center in this picture. He was a preacher used by God in the middle of a revival in the Scottish Hebrides in the beginning of the 1950s. And if you want to hear his testimony about the beginning of that revival uh, and his entering into what, we, what God was already doing there, um, there's, actually, there's actually a message. It's him preaching, um, and it's called, When God Stepped Down. It's uh, very interesting to listen to, and if, and if you're like me, you'll enjoy hearing his Scottish accent. But uh, he talks about what God did there. And as he does, he tells about how two sisters, pictured here, uh, one of them 82 years old, the other 84 and completely blind, became intensely burdened for their community. They were faithfully members of their church, but they had noticed and were very concerned that there were no young people in the church. There were young people in the town, certainly, but there seemed to be no spiritual interest there. And they were, they were deeply concerned about that, and so they began to pray. And God did a miraculous work in their hearts. And uh, as they were praying, uh, the older sister went to her minister. And he, too, was burdened for young people. They'd done many things to try to reach out to young people, special outreaches, um, uh, they tried everything they could think of to try to draw the young people in, and it just wasn't working. And as Duncan Campbell tells the story, this blind woman came to her minister, and she said, I'm sure, Mr. Mackay, that you're longing to see God working. What about calling your office bearers together and suggest to them that you spend two nights a week waiting upon God in prayer? You've tried mission. You've tried special evangelists. Mr. Mackay, have you tried God? (laughs) Who could say no to that? And he agreed, and the leaders of the church began to meet on Tuesdays and Fridays. And so they would meet in one place while the sisters met in their home, and they would pray from 10 o'clock at night to 4 o'clock in the morning. And they would pour out their hearts to God. And they specifically claim the promise of Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And again and again they claimed that promise and called out to God. And that continued week by week for several months. And then one evening, a young man stood and he read from Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. And as Duncan Campbell tells it, he closed his Bible and he addressed those men. He said, It seems to me just so much humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting 
if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. Then, as Campbell tells the story, he lifted his two hands and he cried out to God, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And God's spirit overcame him. And God touched that meeting. And as Duncan Campbell attests, that night a power was let loose that shook the whole of Lewis. God stepped down. And that island and others around it were profoundly impacted by the supernatural work that God, that God did there. But I want to point out to you, those two women and that group of men, they had a desire And they made it a matter of prayer. By means of time with God, they had their hearts purified. And they were able to cry out to God with passion and with authority. As they continued to present that desire to God, God purified that prayer. He clarified that prayer. And that night, as that young man expressed to God that he understood this wasn't just about them getting something they wanted. They needed to be who they needed to be before God. They were able to make a prayer to God, unlike I think many of us perhaps have made or at least certainly make on a regular basis. They were able to call out to God with a great deal of faith, with a sureness about what God was going to do. And of course, God answered that prayer. Now, I don't mean to suggest that that sort of passionate seeking of God and that commitment to purity always leads to that sort of revival. I think as soon as we try to put that into a formula, we're missing the point. But I do believe that this is where God wants to bring each of us in prayer. We have a passionate desire, and we're going to present it to God and continue to come before him and allow him to purify our prayers, to purify our desires, to make us who we need to be before him, to refine us. He wants to direct us to where we'll depend on him alone. Only God can tell the power that is in prayer like that. And I think that's what's at the heart of this prayer that Paul is offering here in Colossians 1. I trust with me tonight, you have a desire to take these lessons to heart. To truly make this sort of prayer one of the foundational principles of your life. So let us together take that desire to God in prayer. Our Father, it is an amazing privilege that because of the blood of Christ, we can come before you. We can offer feeble words and imperfect desires to you, knowing that you hear knowing that you care, knowing that you are already at work, 
and knowing that you have promised to answer. Father, we all know we need to pray. We all know that needs to be at the heart of our relationship with you. And yet, Father, I fear that we just let it slip because we don't see it the way you do. And because we're not committed. Father, I pray that you would help us all to be in the habit of taking our desires to you. Whenever we are presented with a desire, whether it's a sinful desire, a material desire, or certainly a spiritual desire, that we would be quick to come before you with that desire. Help us be ready to allow you to do your work of cleansing as we continue to spend time with you in prayer. To make our desires what they need to be. To make our prayers what they ought to be. That your spirit would do that work of of refining our prayers, of refining our hearts. Lord, help us to be a church that is full of prayer. That this is the heartbeat of who we are and what we do. Father, I know I've been challenged by this. And I pray that as others have as well, you'd help us to take care of what you're doing in our hearts. Or we may never see something that's exactly like what they saw on Lewis. But Father, we are not we don't want to limit, we don't want to hold back what you desire to do in and through us. And if you are doing something, it'll be greater than what we imagine or greater what we than what we wish for from the past because it'll be your work in your way, and in your time. Father, help us to be committed to this matter of prayer. We do pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you turn in your hymn books to hymn 371, we can sing this as a prayer to God, a passion for thee.